electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grosso, and Bono and Eisen. Tonight on Fast, a major warning from the Biden administration to China. Defy the U.S.'s sanctions against Russia and you could face devastating consequences. The details and the potential market impact straight ahead. Plus, the crypto crowd breathing a sigh of relief after the president signed an executive order outlining its rules of the road for digital currencies. Brian Kelly will join us to tell us why Bitcoin had such a big day. And a little options action ahead for Rivian's results. Traders are revved up for this report, even though the stock's down close to 60% this year. We start off with a big bounce on Wall Street. The S&P 500 surging more than 2.5%, its best day since June 2020. The Nasdaq jumping 3.6%, and the gains were broad-based. Airlines taking off. Spirit United each up more than 8%. Semi soaring with a... With ST Micro, NVIDIA, and AMD all up more than 5%. Retail, banks, home builders all jumping too. Meantime, commodities getting crushed. Crude oil down more than 12%. Heating oil, gas oil both hitting new records before plunging. Gas oil seeing its worst day since 1991. Before we get to all that, we want to hit the news that just crossed moments ago. Amazon announcing a 20-for-1 stock split and a $10 billion stock buyback. Uh, The shares are off its after-hour session highs, but they're still up 6.8%. Now, we have talked numerous times on this show how splitting a stock does not change anything fundamentally for the company. You're just taking a pie and cutting into different pieces. But Karen, somehow it does make a difference these days. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, for one thing, you do have the ability to trade options then. If this is a 10 for one split, let's say it's 3,000 at the time, 300. So people can do things in options that invites a whole universe of probably more retail buyers than we would see otherwise, to the extent that there are people who are shut out now who can't buy uh, partial shares. So there's that. But I don't think that's such a huge such a huge sort of uh, constituency that should really move the stock a lot. So it is kind of just funny math. The $10 billion buyback, maybe that's good. Usually, though, companies split their stock when things are going well. And Amazon, they may think things are going well, and they are going well. The stock hasn't been going particularly well. But other splits, we saw Google and Tesla. Stocks were kind of really on fire when they did those splits. I'm shocked that it actually took them this long to actually split the stock because of what you just said. You had Google, you had Apple, you have Tesla. All of them worked out. When it's a right-way stock split, the stock rips. When it's a wrong way, the stock craters. This is not shocking to me. It's shocking that they did it. This is an unbelievable uh, change of stance, but you have a new CEO and you have a new stance on what they're doing. And this is a defining moment, I think, for, for Amazon. I mean, I think what we've, we've learned and seen in, in 2021, Bonoin, is the force and the impact of the retail investor and, and their willingness and desire to trade options. I'm wondering what your take is in terms of splitting a stock of this size and how it attracts the retail investor now. Um, as the other panelists have alluded to, I mean, again, it's a zero-sum game in terms of the stock split in and of itself. But Karen did raise a really good point in terms of the option. So just the amount of notional or amount of cash outlay that one would have to make and the type of like, you know, position you would have to take from a P&L standpoint 
and the corresponding margin of those trades is really what changes. And to make a long story short and to put it in lay terms, essentially you can risk $10 when you used to have to risk $100 and get the same type of risk reward. And I do think that is meaningful and impactful in terms of the type of um, you know, volatility probably increase that we will see in the stock and the type of trades that one can now take part in. I just want to correct something. I said 10 for one. It's actually a 20 for one 20 split. For so 3,000 yeah. would be 150. Yeah. Guy, this is like pixie dusk. They're at a stock split, and all of a sudden, you've got to pop on the stock. Wasn't that Peter Pan or Captain Hook or Tinkerbell? Who had the pixie dust? I don't know. I mean, I'm all for pixie dust. I think it's great. It's great at parties. I mean, everybody wants to be festive. On February 8th, I think Amazon reported. It was the day after Facebook reported and just got obliterated. And if you remember, Amazon sold off that same day prior to earnings. Earnings release came out. The stock spiked up to 3,300. We did the show. I think collectively we said, listen, wasn't a particularly great quarter. It's a great stock reaction, not a great quarter. A lot of blowback we got. And guess what? Stock traded right back down to 2,700, which was there earlier this week. 2,700, as it turns out, the lower end of the range we've been in for 18 months. So I'm with Steve on this one. I think I'm with everybody on this one. I don't think $10 billion moves the needle on $1.4 trillion company. I mean, it's, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, I think this is impactful, especially at this price point. So I think in terms of the trading range, we're at the lower end of it. And I think Amazon can trade higher even from current levels. I mean, just to give you an idea of how drop in the bucket $10 billion is, the company added $90 billion in market cap in just the past, you know, 10 minutes uh, because of the stock pop. Uh, Karen, in terms of this token buyback, why would a company do such a small buyback? Why bother, especially when a company is in spending mode? I don't know if they're doing stock-based compensation and they want to sort of uh, buy that back. I'm not really sure. Maybe they, that's what they use the, that money for. They buy the shares back and give that stock-based compensation. I don't know. It sort of says more in its being so small than it does as, wow, this is a big vote of confidence. Isn't this, though, you're coming out of the pandemic. This was considered a pandemic stock. And now, all of a sudden, you have another lever to pull for the name. So for me, I I wish they would have done this years ago. Years ago, I think it would have been a lot more positive. For me, I feel like they're doing it out of a position of weakness versus strength yet again for a lot of these large cap tech names. Uh, Do we care, Guy, that this makes them a candidate for Dow inclusion? We we usually emphasize the S&P 500 just because it's much broader base and there's more funds, uh, you know, indexed to the S&P. I, I still think there's some cachet to that. Again, another word I can't spell, like sort of playing for the Yankees instead of playing for the Mets. So, yeah, I think there's something to that without question, Melissa Lee. Well, I don't know if Salesforce would say that. I mean, what do you, right? I mean, Salesforce got at it. It wasn't exactly the best event that ever happened, Bono. I mean, I think it all comes back to, I mean, Steve kind of alluded to it. I, I might spin it a slightly different way. It's, it's more or less window dressing. I think um, I'm not going to argue that it's necessarily a position of weakness, but I do think it would have been more impactful previously. But now I do think it's a bit of posturing saying, hey, we're comfortable with the stock price here. We think it's undervalued. Whether it be $10 billion or whether you want it to be more, we're willing to allocate capital towards buying what we deem to be an underappreciated asset. All right, let's get back to the market rally that we saw today. And I think the question that we all have regarding the size and the scope of the rally is do you... Do you believe the bounce? Do you think, Guy, anything has changed between today and and yesterday? 
the only thing that's changed is obviously the price. But go back to yesterday's show. Listen to what Karen said. Go back and, and put your, your Betamax on and listen to the comments <laughs> she made. I mean, she talked about this day exactly at the top of the show. And here we are, not only in the equity market, but then we had we talked about um, we talked about energy at the, at the middle of the show and the potential for it to sell off in a meaningful way on any remote good news. And that's exactly what happened. To answer your question. No, I don't believe it. Nothing's changed. I think in order to be bullish here, overall bullish, you have to believe that somehow peace is going to break out. The Fed is going to f- thread this needle, which is not going to happen. And earnings are going to hold up into what seems to be a slowing economy. So I think the overriding theme is you sell rallies now as opposed to where we were pre-Thanksgiving of 2021, where you were buying sell-offs. Let's get a, a, an answer to that question. Let's see if anything is different in terms of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Kayla Tausch is in D.C. with the very latest. Kayla, is anything different? Because the markets, various asset classes are telling us that, that the situation is improving. Well, that's certainly what the market has been led to believe. The market's clung to any positive headline as a buying opportunity for months now. Remember three weeks ago, rising sharply on a belief that a promise by Russia's top diplomat to meet with the U.S. meant an invasion was out of the cards. We saw how that played out. And now a fourth round of ceasefire talks inspiring optimism despite little substance changing. Tomorrow in the Mediterranean city of Antalya, Turkey, Russian's foreign minister Sergei Lavrov leaving the country for the first time since the invasion began to meet with his Ukrainian counterpart. President Zelensky told a German newspaper today he wanted to end the war and was ready to compromise. But that's long been his position. Earlier this week, he told ABC News NATO would not be pushing for Ukraine's membership and that Zelensky was open to dialogue on the separatist regions, saying we can discuss and find a compromise on how those territories will live on. But Zelensky has also said Ukraine is not ready to capitulate, and any deal would require a country's leader to broker it. Vladimir Putin so far has been unwilling to accept Zelensky's invitation, and a spokesperson for the National Security Council telling me today the U.S. is broadly supportive of diplomacy. However, it remains clear-eyed about Russia's intentions, given what's happening on the ground. Inside Ukraine, the International Atomic Energy Agency says it's no longer getting regular data transmissions from the two nuclear sites Russia has overtaken in recent weeks. And now U.S. officials raising new concerns that Russia may use chemical or biological weapons and accuse Ukraine of falsely doing the same thing. Melissa? Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. So it doesn't seem to have much substance in terms of what has transpired today, Karen. Uh, The chemical and biological weapons, that's terrifying in my view. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's your interpretation of the bounce? Guy said, you know, you sell these rallies. Yeah, I agree with Guy on that, you know, nothing much happened. If you stand back and squint and look at the SPY, I mean, it's a blip. It just, you know, it seemed like we were exhausted sellers. We're kind of, I don't know, very bearish. We saw the VIX spike not quite as high as I thought it would. So it's not crazy that we have a bounce like this. But I don't agree with Guy in the, you know, sell every, every rally because... I got to be invested in the market. And I know that I'm never going to pick the bottom or the top. I'm never going to be able to do that sell and buy back tax efficiently. So I got to stay in it. And so I try to, you know, just buy companies where I think the long term value is there and that balance sheets are in good shape. That's where you really run into trouble. And and I I think it's a matter of, to your point, a matter of staying long 70 percent of your portfolio and trading around it with 30 percent or even in individual names. But how do you buy a bottom with by, by, uh, by, uh, with chemical warfare, bombs going off, that's an impossible bottom for me to buy. 
Was that so, ever off the table, though? What? Chemical weapons. I think this so whole thing is so surreal. Now. Was it ever off? Right. I don't know. Has it entered the conversation? Well, he, he didn't say he was ever going to <laughs> right. move into Ukraine. Yeah, so that, all of this is off. As well. Yeah. Bono, and you're making the point today that everything rallied today, which seems suspicious to you. <laughs> Yeah, it just seems like uh, blind buying uh, or exhausted sellers and people trying to be opportunistic here, which I don't really think that's a, a very thoughtful play, but given the geopolitical risk, they make no bones about it. This is a binary event. I couldn't tell you, and I don't think anyone w- being honest could claim that they can tell you how to play a, a possible war outcome or a conflict like this outcome. So you see oil kind of coming off. People tend to buy everything. Last time I checked, is oil at 110 bucks? Is that is that a positive? I, I still think that's pain for the consumer. I mean, that's the driving force, you know, behind our economy. We saw flat, you know, wage growth in uh, Thursday or Friday's reading. I, I, I still, you know, we still have. I think the twos tens around 26, 27 basis points. I don't know. It seems like all of that was ignored. Oil came down 15, 16 percent. Uh, we have some maybe window dressing news out of Ukraine, Russia region, and people are back risk on. Makes absolutely no sense. It's, it's, technically, we're still very much in a downtrend, and I think this is a, a bear market bounce. Yeah. So, so, Guy, what do you think about tomorrow? How do you think about tomorrow then? Think about it in the lens of the CPI. What does that mean? Does it mean anything at this point, right? I mean, it, you know, I think prior to, I think two or three weeks ago, we would have been looking for the CPI print is, is, a, is in terms of the direction it will give us for the market. I don't think it necessarily means that much now. It's really coming down to the headlines. But make no mistake, I mean, real inflation in this country, I'll say this, I'm sure people have come at me, it ain't the 7.5% that you read about. It's probably closer, given everything that's going on, to 14%, which means real yields are about as negative as they've been, which means the Fed's probably literally two and a half, three years behind the curve. So they have to move. To me, the market changed late November when they changed course. When they changed course, everything changed. And I think that's what you have to sort of keep in the back of your mind. The Fed is no longer backstopping, is no longer underwriting this market. All right. Coming up, the China factor. Beijing relationships uh, with Russia in focus as the war with Ukraine rages on. Could China be soon in, in the administration's crosshairs? But first, we're all over the after-hours action in CrowdStrike. Shares jumping after reporting earnings. We'll go inside the numbers next. Fast Money's back into. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich 
is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We've got a news alert on Starbucks. Kate Rogers got the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa, the NLRB wrapping up union elections in another three Starbucks cafes in the Buffalo area with the union once again pulling ahead of the coffee giant. The first store, a union win with eight yes votes, seven no. The second and third stores also went for the union with 15 yes and 12 no votes at each location. Now, this makes a total of six so far that have voted yes on unionizing. In addition to today's stores, two other locations in Buffalo and one in Mesa, Arizona, have voted in favor of organizing. But remember, this is just the beginning, according to Starbucks Workers United, 129 stores in 26 states have now petitioned the NLRB to unionize. Starbucks has in the past approached bargaining at a store-by-store manner. So if that continues, this could really take a long time before the unionized stores can collectively flex their power. But again, symbolic here, three more wins for the union. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers, I mean, you hear that, Karen, you think eventually you're on the path to rising wages. Yeah, I think so. Although, you know, I look at something UPS versus FedEx. UPS does have unionized drivers. FedEx does not. UPS seems to be doing a better job. Right. But generally, it hasn't been seen as a favorable thing. All right, let's get to an earnings alert here on CrowdStrike. Shares are jumping higher after after hours in the back of its uh, earnings report. CrowdStrike's conference call is underway right now. Let's get straight to Christina Partsnevelis for the details. Christina. Well, $20 million, that's above revenue estimates. That's the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike handily beat expectations during the fourth quarter. And that's driven in large part by annual reoccurring revenue. So in this particular last quarter, the company saw a 66% jump in subscription revenue versus a year ago. Further growth could be in store too. The CEO did say in the statement, these results, quote, enables us to step up investments in new technologies and international geographies. Growth, though, driven by increased cyber security threats. We hear about it all the time. CrowdStrike CEO came on CNBC just less than two weeks ago on February 24th to warn that some U.S. bank executives are worried about potentially being the target of Russian cyber attacks. CrowdStrike is cloud-focused security and already works with 14 of the 20 largest U.S. banks, contributing to the company's bullish stance for its Q1 earnings per share and revenue, which also beat estimates today, pushing the stock price above uh, 10% in after-hours trading. And I know you said the conference call is underway, but so far it's just a rehash of the numbers. They haven't gotten to the Q&A just yet. All right, Christina, keep us posted. Thank you, Christina Partsnevelis. So beat and a raise, Guy. That's the magic combination there. Yeah, where were you last night? Where were you last night, Melvin, between 5 and 6 p.m. on the East Coast? Right here. Excellent call. On CrowdStrike. And pixie dust. dust. <laughs> and pixie dust. No, oddly enough, I mean, that's the blind squirrel thing for sure. But we talked about CrowdStrike. What we said was, look, it's come off significantly from that all-time high it made a few months ago. The setup was really good. And by the way, the earnings were really good as well. They beat EPS by 50%. They got it higher for all of this, this fiscal year coming into. And I know, at 20 times revenue, you say this is an expensive stock. Yeah, it is. But you know what? All these names are expensive. It had a huge intraday move. It's having a bigger post-market move. And I think this move to the upside continues, Melissa Lee. So it's delivered. It's an environment, Bonowin, that should be very favorable for this industry. Do you like CrowdStrike? 
Uh, I do. You know, from a macro standpoint, definitely. You know, the cybersecurity is probably top of mind for just about for just about everyone. You've got Russia that's involved. We don't need to wax poetic about 2016. We have the midterms that are coming up, and the difference between this company, despite the fact that it does trade at a bloated valuation, is that it is making the pivot from nonprofit to profitable operations. You expect to see it to be non-adjusted positive in about 2022. So I think that is a key differentiating factor there. This is right around where the stock has jumped uh, in the past. So, and, and when it jumps on earnings, it usually jumps about 20 bucks. It hasn't done that just yet, but this is going to monopolize the, the conversation for the foreseeable future. And it's definitely the name that is garnering all the attention. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. China Check. The country's moves in focus as the Russia-Ukraine war rages on. So are secondary sanctions in play. We'll break down what's in store. Plus, Disney losing magic? Shares heading south this year. But can you bank on a whole new world for the stock? The traders dig into that name next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. We're back right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The U.S. warning China it could face devastating sanctions if it defies the ban on doing business with Russia. This is a move that could have huge impact on American companies. Take a look at just some of the S&P constituents with heavy China exposure. Qualcomm deriving nearly 70 percent of its revenue from China. Texas Instruments, Broadcom, other semiconductor names also on that list. So what happens if D.C. goes after Beijing? Let's bring into Wardrick McNeil, Longview Global Managing Director and Senior Policy Analyst. He's also with CNBC contributor. DeWardra, great to see you again. Great to see you also, Melissa. This seems like a really tough decision for the Biden administration to make if they're still actually weighing this because it would really hurt a U.S. industry and hurt these U.S. players very, very deeply if they decided to go down this route. It's true, uh, Melissa, that this could have some real implications for U.S. businesses. Uh, China is not quite like Russia, given the size of its market and the degree to which uh, many U.S. companies are integrated into this market. Uh, but China is also very concerned here about the threat of secondary sanctions. Uh, they're trying to have it both ways here, Melissa, and thread the needle. Uh, they want to do just enough to avoid those secondary sanctions. But there are also a lot of opportunities here for Chinese companies if they could figure out and modulate just where those red lines are. But we have no idea because we haven't had a test case yet 
uh, one hopes that we do not, but uh, we may see one in the case of union pay. As you'll recall, when MasterCard and Visa left Russia, uh, the Russians have suggested that union pay, which is a Chinese credit card uh, payment system, might be used instead. So uh, we'll have to see if this is the example or if there are other examples out there in the banking or the tech sector. But mm -hmm. this is fraught with risk for both sides, the U.S. and China, Melissa. Well, there are reports as well, DeWardrick, as you know, that, that China is considering buying Russian oil assets or buying stakes in Russian oil companies. And, and since we have a position of banning Russian oil, I would think that that would really tr trigger secondary sanctions, if not, you know, move the conversation much closer to considering them. This is a good point you make, uh, Melissa, is not just looking for uh, opportunities to buy uh, stakes in Russian oil, but even... Uh, uh, companies like Rusal, which is a Russian mineral company. You see uh, statements about companies like Chinalco, a Chinese mining company, uh, China Min Metals, all looking for opportunities to increase their investments and stakes in Russian companies. But as you well put, Melissa, we don't know if this will trigger those secondary sanctions that I think many of us are, are waiting to see sort of what are those red lines. But we don't have a test case just yet. Dwardrick, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So I don't know if you saw those numbers we put up about how much Intel and a bunch of others do uh, business in China. That is a tremendous game of chicken. Who do you think has the most to lose? Well, you know, this is one of those situations where we've tied ourselves at the ankles and we're both sinking something like this were to happen. But you're right, Karen. There's a lot of Intel chips within some of these uh, technology uh, companies that are uh, doing business in Russia. And in theory, that could trigger secondary sanctions. Uh, we, we just don't know. But again, uh, it is important to note that we will all uh, suffer if China finds itself on the secondary sanctions, list, particularly in the tech sector, because we are so integrated, even though we're trying to decouple. That has not happened yet, Karen. So, DeWardrick, in, in recent days, we've seen a number of companies announce that they're pulling out, they're suspending operations in Russia, they're pulling out of Russia without even sanctions, without any actual force. But they, it's a decision they've made themselves just optically. It's better for them. Um, and I'm wondering if, if you view companies with significant presences in China, are they at risk in some way? I mean, if we go down the road of secondary sanctions, it seems to me that, that perhaps companies would fa face that same sort of pressure to perhaps curtail business, which would be a tremendous impact. Yeah, also a good question. I suspect that these companies with operations in China, and if it's a Starbucks or a McDonald's or an Apple, for example, these companies are ubiquitous in China. You can find them on every corner. I don't suspect that there will be threat of secondary sanctions if they uh, are continuing to operate in China. Where that could become an issue, Melissa, and let's hope that doesn't happen ever, but if there is some sort of threat against Taiwan. But again, China is a very different issue with respect to those companies than Russia. Let's take Apple, for example. 1.4% of Apple's revenue comes from Russia. 19% comes from China. So again, as I mentioned with Karen, we're tied at the ankle here, unfortunately. And this would have some real repercussions if those companies were to find themselves on a secondary sanctions gambit uh, between uh, the U.S., Russia and China. But I don't think that will happen in this scenario. 
I'm not breaking any news here, but our politicians, we have to, you know, presidential election every four years. Um, they don't. Their guy is going to be there for the rest of his life. So by definition, they're better suited to play the long game. Should we dismiss that or is that an important element in this equation? Well, I think you're right to point out that uh, she is not necessarily answerable the way uh, Biden is to an electorate. But uh, the Chinese Communist Party have to continue to deliver their whole issue around uh, what they consider uh, to be their case for continuing to govern is that the Chinese economy is doing well, Chinese people are doing relatively well. If this were to not be the case, I suspect we would have real issues around political stability and economic instability. So she does not have a completely free hand with respect to how he governs the economy. And again, secondary sanctions could trip up a lot of different jeopardies for Xi Jinping going into a party Congress here in the fall. Yeah. Uh, DeWardrick, thanks so much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. All right. So we've been talking and sort of swiping at this issue for, for days, for weeks now, in terms of Chinese uh, exposure by American companies and, and what happens if, if there are secondary sanctions. And we use the, those words, and I think it's important to think about if we use those words, because sanctions are very serious, right? It's, it's, we sanction Russia. If we have secondary san- sanctions against China, will U.S. companies be forced to reevaluate how they do business there? I don't know. How do you, how do you weigh that risk, Steve? So the problem is, though, we had a test pattern that we ran with Russia right now. So everyone plowed out of Russian stocks or Russian-related equities. And now I think people are doing it with China. They've been doing it for quite some time. But look at Alibaba. The stock is down 57% in a one-year performance. There's no sign of a bounce. People are not going to be buying China. Stocks, casinos, anything there. Right. But in terms of the U.S. companies that operate, I mean, Karen, if right. you think about an Apple, which DeWardrick specifically cited, I mean, if, if you feel forced because the U.S. has secondary sanctions on China, mm-hmm. there could be just a public outcry, not even just any force from the administration. Right. And it's scary because China has been the growth engine and it's been such a great place for, you know, for companies like Starbucks and Nike and McDonald's. And instead of thinking about it as oh, here's some wide open space where we can really grow. What if it becomes a negative? I mean, I, I do think it's actually, become, you can't be as positive on it. You don't mm-hmm. know for sure what's going to happen. It is one of the reasons I do like Google, Meta, Twitter. Um, none of them have meaningful China exposure. Right. And, and I know a lot of you out there are, are thinking to yourself, this it'll never happen. It'll never happen. But you know what? <laughs> you got to think about these things, right? And, and Bonwin, I would think that that possibility is not priced into any stock right now in terms of China exposure being a risk as opposed to a positive. Um, to an extent, I mean, uh, I think you mentioned it, you have seen a lot of rotation out of China or at least I think we're having problems with uh, Bonwin's audio. We'll try and straighten that out. Guy, to you. We talked about tail risk. I mean, we have been talking about this for a while. And, you know, we're not rooting for anything, obviously. We're just trying to point out what could go wrong. And to your point or your question, you know, if, if secondary sanctions were put on the Chinese, would that force a company like Apple's hand? Um, they've set a precedent clearly with what they're doing in Russia, correctly so. But if we were to put on secondary sanctions, it speaks to we're not happy with them. Furthermore, we brought this up as well. What we haven't talked about, if there's something between China and Taiwan that rears its ugly head, 
Does that force Apple's hand? And I'm picking on Apple specifically, obviously, because that's the biggest company in the world with significant exposure, obviously, in China. All right. Up next, Disney difficulty. CEO Bob Chapek getting an earful from shareholders over silence on Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. His about face and Disney's path forward straight ahead. Plus, Bitcoin boom. President Biden announcing an executive order on crypto and our own Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly, will join us next to lay out his thoughts. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney, not the happiest place on earth right now. Investors at the shareholder meeting grumpy that the stock's down almost 14 percent this year and that CEO Bob Chapek hasn't followed in the footsteps of his predecessor and taken bolder stances on hot button issues. Are Julia Borson's following the action? Julia. Well, Melissa, at Disney's annual shareholder meeting, CEO Bob Chapek weighing in on the criticism that he and the company have faced for failing to come out in opposition to the so-called Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. Chapek saying they were opposed to the bill, but they didn't take a public position because they thought that it would be more effective to work behind the scenes with lawmakers, saying, quote, I called Governor DeSantis this morning to express our disappointment and concern that if legislation becomes law, it could be used to unfairly target gay, lesbian, non-binary and transgender kids and families, saying the governor heard our concerns and agreed to meet with me and LGBTQ plus members of our senior team in Florida to discuss ways to address them. Now, in the meeting, Chapek stressed the company's commitment to diversity. He also teased the slew of new shows and movies coming, particularly those to Disney Plus, like a new Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Chapek and the rest of the board were reelected as expected, and their compensation was approved. But shareholders did approve one proposal that Disney opposed. 59% of those shareholders voted in support for a proposal to disclose gender and racial equity pay data. So really interesting one to watch there, Melissa. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. So as much as a company may want to try and stay out of this whole thing, they are being drawn increasingly into these issues, Karen. This seems like a huge risk for a company. It is. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. I mean, we've seen this minefield a number of times. I mean, if you remember the Nike situation mm-hmm. and then I think Delta Airlines, uh, I think it was related to gun, uh, having a gun on a plane. I, I, it's, it's difficult to be a CEO these days. It used to be that you could stay out of the fray and didn't have to opine, but that's not the case anymore. When you have so many constituencies, you're, you're, it's not just your shareholders, it's your employees, it's your customers. I think you kind of have to be driven by what they want. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you don't have a choice anymore. I think if you just have a solid statement that you're not going to discuss any of that in front of anyone and you'll do more behind closed doors, I think that when you, when you go back and forth, that's where you get into trouble. Well, that's, that's yeah, that's where, where the problem lies. But, Guy, Disney's real problem is not this. Disney's real problem is how investors are perceiving Uh, the streaming service. Yeah, no question about it. But I will tell you, you look at the last quarter, and by the way, Steve was saying get long Disney into earnings last quarter was 142. I think it traded up to 157. That was well done because I think he exited at the same day. What I'll tell you is for the first time in a while at 137, wherever we are, you can actually make a really compelling case for Disney on valuation. 
probably 22 times next year's expected numbers, probably have, I don't know, 11% or so um, revenue growth, maybe 26% EPS growth, and a decent backdrop for the second half of the year, in my opinion, with the variant out of the way. So I like Disney here, but with that said, I liked it at 150 as well. Well, it's actually at 133.65 right now. Karen, could you see it being a value stock since you're the value investor here? Well, value ain't what it used to be, I guess. But yes, <laughs> I, I could. I think that I, I think they'll have great reopening. I mean, it's already started. And I, I think JPEG's doing a great job, actually. So, yeah, I've been waiting for Disney for a while. Now that it got to near my price, I'm like, ah, I'm scared. I don't want to buy it. But I think for the long run, it's probably good to own. Yeah. I mean, reopening's on its way. It's well underway here. But at the same time, would you rather a Netflix, Steve? Mm, would you rather here? I, I didn't I, say it way, exactly, but. I think people are looking for experiences. They want to get out, back out there in parks. It's a $16 billion revenue generator in a normalized environment. I am actually back long again the stock. I think it goes much higher from here. Technically, this is where it bounced in July, almost down to the penny. Yep. Coming up, electric options. Rivian on deck to report tomorrow, and that's got options traders charged up how they are playing the name next. But first, big day for Bitcoin. President Biden signing executive order on digital assets. But what does it mean for crypto? The Bitcoin baller makes a special appearance to break it all down. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Bitcoin and Ethereum. Leading the crypto market higher today, President Biden signing an executive order stating the United States must maintain technological leadership in the rapidly growing crypto space, supporting innovation while mitigating the risks. For more on what this and the means and what the consequences it could have for crypto and the market, let's bring in our very own Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly. He joins us on the Fast Line. BK, it's always good to get your take on these things. It's very high level. I don't know if any of the buckets, the six areas that they are going to focus on in the coming days are a surprise. So what exactly was so bullish about this? Yeah, so that, that's a great question, Melissa. So really what was bullish about it is the industry has been clamoring for regulatory clarity. And the biggest concern was that there was going to be either regulatory overreach or, you know, a, a flat out ban. So it was welcome that they're saying, hey, listen, we want to keep uh, our competitive competitiveness globally, but we also recognize they're at risk. And about half of the executive order had to do with national security, which we all, I think, would agree is probably a good thing. So in general, that's why you had this 8 to 9% rally in Bitcoin and Ethereum today. Uh, in terms of the, the kinds of coins that would benefit the most from the notion that the U.S. wants to maintain its technological edge and be a home for innovation, which coins would it be? Because there are some coins you know, that, that depend more heavily on that notion and that, you know, entire platforms are, are built on top of them. Right, right. So you're talking about like an Ethereum, right? Any of these smart contract platforms, anything that's going to be that Web 3.0 is going to be built on is likely to be the most, is both likely to benefit the most, primarily because if you think about that, this is really kind of the next version of tech, the next version of the Web. And so, when you get into Bitcoin, which really is a currency and it's kind of competing with, with gold, um, that's one aspect of it. But this whole Web3 DeFi area, that's going to be the biggest beneficiary of, of this regulatory clarity. You often like to find the, the contrary uh, way of thinking about things, BK. And so, you know, what, what would your concerns <laughs> be? Because this is very, it's pretty vague right now. Um, there's a long road between this and actual legislation or actual, you know, acts 
that become official in any way. And so I'm wondering if there are areas in the market that you're concerned about in crypto. Yeah, I think I think the biggest concern here is, I mean, one, I agree with the national security angle to this. However, it's very clear that you have these sanctions and how powerful the U.S. dollar-based global financial system is. Uh, if for some reason crypto was viewed as a threat to that, uh, to the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency, then I think that would be the kind of a negative to this executive order. Uh, and I would be concerned about that because then that would get us closer to a flat-out ban. Again, I don't. that's not my base case, but if I have to pick something out of it that is worrying me, it would be worrying that Congress and politicians look at crypto as a threat to the global world order. All right. BK, always great to get your take on these sorts of things. Brian Kelly, our own in-house Bitcoin baller, joining us on the fast line tonight. Um, Karen, do you think that this is the, it sounds positive, at least at the get-go? Right. But, and I would imagine that because institutions, more and more institutions are in crypto, that the lobbying power is much bigger now. <laughs> Absolutely, right? When you think about some of the dollars behind it, that's an excellent point. I think it, was, it wasn't anything bad, so that's good. Simple right. as that. Yes. Not kind bad of, is the we new don't good. Really know what it was, right? We still don't know what it yes, was. That's but the thing that I was bad. We know it wasn't, you know. I, I think <laughs> when, also when you have oligarchs trying to hide their money and in, in, in whether it's gold or whether it's Bitcoin or whether uh -huh. it's Ethereum, I think that's been a tailwind for it. Obviously, the regulatory framework to, to this point, no one has any idea what's a tailwind, what's a headwind, but as soon as you start talking about it and, and someone doesn't say that we hate it, then it's a tailwind. So you, you kind of keep it really in its elementary thing. I, I actually bought some, uh, some of the Grayscale Ethereum Trust for my children, finally. I, I got off the, uh, off, off the you know, bubble and bought it for them. But it's, it, I, the problem with this is they're both in, Bitcoin and Ethereum are both in a declining trend line. Mm -hmm. So they have to really break out to really have any substantive rally to get back to the old recent highs. I think this notion that people are using it to hide money is interesting considering it's a public ledger. Yeah. You can actually track all the transactions, Guy. But I mean, you know, Grosso brings up a, an interesting point about the charts. You know, all this is positive. We see it pop today, but the technicals may not be looking too good. No, and to Steve's point, just looking at this through that lens, I think 46,000-ish is a 200-day moving average. If you go back and look, that's what it failed at about a week, week and a half ago. We traded back down to 38,000, and here we are. So I think the way to trade it, again, just my opinion, if you want to get in, if you haven't been in, you buy it on a breakout above 46,000, or you look to that pullback that we've seen a number of times now back to 38. All right, coming up, electric earnings. Rivian on deck to report and shares have hit a roadblock recently. So how are options traders playing it? we got the details next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Rivian rebounding after a string of down days. The electric automakers dropped nearly 60 Six zero percent already this year. But that isn't stopping one options trader from making a big bullish bet on the name ahead of tomorrow's uh, earnings. Let's get straight to Tony Zhang with the action. Tony. Yeah, Melissa, as you said, there was some sizable bullish flow here in Rivian. Currently, today was a very active day, about 1.3 times the average daily volume. But the options market is currently implying an explosive 17.4% implied move on this earnings event. And one trader seems to agree 
trading over 3,000 contracts of the March 55-65 call vertical for an average price of about $1.21 per share. And that translates to a break-even of 28% higher in just nine days for this particular trade. So this trader is laying out $370,000 in premium to bet on what is a very bullish outcome here for earnings. Did you say 28% higher in nine days, Tony? That's the bet? That's correct. Wow. Guy, which side of that bet would you be on? Well, I mean, we I think we correctly steered people away from this name for a long time. But now at least at least it's some semblance of normalcy in terms of price to sales and those things. I know that sounds crazy because it's still expensive. I think you could actually see that commensurate move. And I think what Tony's talking about is potentially move to fifty four, fifty five dollars. I'm still long the name. This is a long term story for me. I think the management kind of screwed up a little bit on pricing. Having said that, uh, earnings always make me nervous for a company that doesn't have earnings. <laughs> so that's always, but I think that, to Guy's point, I think that's already in the mix. That's in the soup already. So the uh, upside to me is your better bet. All right. Tony, good to see you. Thanks, Tony Zhang. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Welcome back to Fast Money. If you missed the top of the show, wanted to get you uh, that big news out of Amazon, the company announcing a 20-for-1 stock split and a $10 billion share buyback. The stock is off of the after-hours session highs, um, but it's still up about 6.5%. Guy, just quickly, what's your guess on where the stock is tomorrow? I think it's going to go higher from here. You know, I think we tested the bottom end of a range. As I said, we've been in for 18 months. I think you can play from the long side, and you look for the bounce to the post-earnings level of 33.50. Yeah, and, and I already we're getting a lot of Twitter tweets, Twitter people out there saying, you know, this doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. It does, though, if you're a retail trader in particular who wants to trade options. We know that there are fractional shares out there, but there aren't fractional options contracts yet, Karen. I mean, that can, yes. that can make a difference. I know. I'm sort of surprised. That was news to me after a couple of years. I learned that, and I finally saw that, yes, that indeed happened. So I believe it. All right. Uh, let's get to the final trade now. Go around the horn. We had some technical difficulties, as you know, with Bonowin, but he's on the fast line now with his trade. Bonowin. They underperformed today. They definitely let me down on the show, but uh, I like to pick the posture XLU. <laughs> Guy Adami. Zscaler in the cyber world space, Melms. Steve was wondering why you didn't bring it up. And there you are, Karen Feiderman. Yeah, uh, selling some spider calls. They had a big bounce today, take some money off the table. Nice trade. Steve. You have to look for bargains in this marketplace, things that were beaten up unjustifiably. So Capri is that one for me. It went from $70 into the 40s. This is one that I think is as close to a no-brainer as you get. All right. Thanks so much for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. But do not go anywhere. A CNBC special, Crypto Night in America starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.